we get into Acts, I want to ask you if you've ever experienced this, where somebody asks you some basic question, which you know the answer to, but in the moment you're not sure how to answer, uh, because it's so basic, how would you respond to a question like this? What are fathers for? It's really basic, right? But we assume reality more than we consciously think of how we might biblically answer such a question. And, and many such questions exist. <clears throat> and our passage today will lead us to a basic yet extremely important question about our identity. And the, the question goes like, what does it mean to be a Christian? Now, <clears throat> this is... A theological question that's not, uh, how shall you say, the, the, uh, ex- exactly what Luke is communicating, but it is uh, consistent with the understanding of the text, and I'll, I'll show you the differences between what we're, what we're doing here. I want to theologically make a point for you, <clears throat> because Luke, as you know, as a writer, is not just wanting you to hear a good story or a narrative. He's a theologian. He is intending to communicate a theological message, and he notes this event, although he can note many others. He wants you to know, in verse 26, just beginning in our text here, uh, these things. Namely, that in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And you know, in context, this is the first large Gentile gathering, this large Gentile church we saw Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and he's going off to where, back to Ethiopia. And so you have a single Christian and maybe those who are with him. And then you have the church in Cornelius's home, Uh, but we don't get any further discussions. Antioch becomes this larger movement where God saves a number of other Gentiles. And and there has been, uh, in the most recent context, in chapter 10 and 11, a push towards um, a shift in all of Acts, which is that the mission of God is now moving into Gentile territory. And so this final sentence begins with a simple phrase that the disciples were first called Christians. As you know, disciple is uh, in our modern parlance, the way that we would talk as a, a student of a particular person, and or school of thought. So you could be um, a follower of, of Gandhi or something like that. You would be his kind of disciple. Well, we are disciples of Christ. And so those who were known in those days, we've already been told, at least in chapter 9, verse 2, that Paul or Saul is persecuting the church for those, uh, quote unquote, belonging to the way, right? That's how they were known. But now... This very first Gentile church is known by this name, Christians. It's the first time, and it's important for us to know. I'll let others make the arguments about history and the etymology of the name and so forth like that. What I want to point out is what Luke's intention is, which is why I stand up here from a Sunday to Sunday. Luke writes these words by the Holy Spirit because it's important for us to recognize that this first Gentile congregation identified by this, uh, is identified by this name. And, and we think, well, why? 
Well, that is because the name stuck. Uh, what did you understand yourself to be, become 2,000 years later? The, by the same name. This name has been universally held by all the Christian church ever since this day. It explains not only who that church was, but who we are today. And so there's a, a continuity of what, uh, uh, what name identifies who we are. <clears throat> since Jesus's authoritative kingly decree in Matthew 28 is to disciple the nations baptize them and and teach them to obey, at a very early point here, they're all identified as Christians. And so it explains our name too. And the Holy Spirit has been pleased to show us the origin of of this. And it's been universally accepted because it's so fitting. The the name itself simply tells us that the central identity of this group of people, which we are and which every church is, is is located in and flows from our relationship to Jesus Christ. Which leads us to an even more basic question. We could say, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? Or from another angle, the question I would ask is, what is the Christian message about? If it, if it means to be a Christian related to Jesus, the Messiah of God, well, then what is the message related to him and his people? What, what's that all about then? That's the, that's the one underneath, <clears throat> the one I've already asked. Although it would be appropriate for me here just to walk through the Nicene Creed or one of the Gospels and do that same thing. We could do that. I, I want to approach it from a different way to help draw out the theological implications and to help you think in a, a more holistic way. Sometimes um, uh, we think more in terms of the tradition that we've, we understand than the biblical shape of explaining life. And so if someone were to ask me, Fred, what does it mean to be a Christian or what is the Christian message about? I could simply respond everything. Christian message is about everything without exception. It's because the, the Christian gospel touches every single invisible Adam in all the universe. The Christian message and gospel has no boundary. The gospel is really the story of how God created all things good, how all things were plunged into sin, and how all things are saved and redeemed and restored completely by the God-man Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. It is all centrally located to him, but the extent of it is all of creation. It is not limited to one small sphere. It is related to every sphere, every bit of knowledge, every bit of material, every bit of everything, which is Glorious, and, and so what we could also say is the, the gospel or the message of Christianity is about what it means to be truly human. In other words, 
since mankind has fallen and has become totally corrupt, <clears throat> Christianity and its message is how man becomes properly humane again, how it becomes properly um, in relation to God and Christ and the Holy Spirit. The corruption that has come upon us has made us improper and marred and warped and corrupt and, and whatever other word we could use. And the work of Jesus is restoring all of it, all of it, every last bit. So the, the work of G Jesus, we, we covered this a little bit in Ephesians 4 when we were here. I'm going to reference some of this. If you want to go back on your own time and look in Ephesians chapter 4, you'll know that the work of Jesus is described as creating a new humanity, renewing mankind, humanity in general, um, through the gospel into the image of God. That, that's what was broken and messed up. And now the gospel restores all that. So it makes us in proper relation to what we eat and drink or what we do on a daily basis or any big endeavor that we, we encounter. This is the Christian message. <clears throat> and so that's what it means to bear the name Christian. That's, that's what it really means for the Antioch disciples and ourselves to say, I am a Christian. I have been restored in my humanity to God and to the world and to all my relations. Now, <clears throat> um, we're going to keep on this theme, but I, I also want to make sure that we don't ever stray too far away from the understanding of what the text itself is saying. And in 27 through 30, we have a section, and I want us to recognize what's going on here. Please look in verse 27 with me. <clears throat> it reads this way. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So, in this section, <clears throat> just hold on to a question for me, and, and I'll come back to it, okay? The question is, what do a people who have their humanity restored... In Christ Jesus, do. That's a theological question that I want you to hold on to. And we'll get back there after we look at what the, what the text actually teaches and says specifically. <clears throat> um, so for the exegetical uh, explanation of the text, it says um, that there were prophets that were coming in those days from headquarters, Jerusalem, uh, down to Antioch. And, and this describes a particular time, a particular period in the life of the early Christian church, which I would assert is different than the normative experience of Christians today. We, we observe that these are per, peculiar, peculiarly distinguished individuals. Namely, these weren't normal congregants. Uh, they were given a particular office and, an, and a title. That is, they were called Prophets, and they are traveling from one place to the other, that is, with the apostles in Jerusalem to this uh, fledgling church 
in Antioch. A, a prophet, as you know, is a, is a mediatorial office. It's a go-between between God and the people. And in this office, uh, men of old and, and even some women and in the New Testament period, era, they were empowered by the Spirit as an individual to give uh, the revelation of God's word to God's world. Um, lots of times the church, but not always. Sometimes just the world in general. <clears throat> it is beyond our purposes today to make a full defense of, of what I hold to that is Reformed cessationism. Uh, but I will just simply define it and point you to the 1689, which reads this way, that the Holy Scriptures are absolutely necessary because God's former ways of revealing his will to his people have now ceased. Uh, in line with that, Hebrews tells us that in the last days of the old covenant, which was coming to an end and would decisively end at 70 AD, uh, that's the days before which all of the New Testament, including Revelation, was written, I would argue. And those days in coming to an end would have, as Jesus predicted in Matthew 24, lots of things going on. And, and prophets and apostles are one of them. And in this office, they speak for God authoritatively. This totally fits with what we saw in Ephesians chapter 2 not too long ago. <clears throat> that is this office of, of apostle, which we know is coming on the heels of, of Christ. So Christ um, obviously is an office. It's a, it's a title that he wears. It's not his last name, <laughs> as some think, but it's rather his office along with the apostles. And there's 12 plus 1, Judas being replaced by uh, Matthias and, and Paul being added after the persecution of Stephen, which we read through. And alongside those, there's various prophets. Not very many of them are named, unless maybe Luke is one. I'm not, I'm not sure if he would be titled that way, but certainly Agabus is one. And in our, our text here in verse 28... This specific individual, Agabus, <clears throat> although it's not normative today, we see what the operation of the prophet in that day was. Um, not the general prophet that would be a preacher, but rather the specific one who at this point foretells a future event. He says, hey, church, there's a famine coming. It's going to be across the whole world and you need to prepare for it. And um, if you can think about timeline wise... The resurrection has just happened not very long ago, right? And this church is beginning. So if Christ and his work is, is right at 30, right? You have mid, late 30s. I don't know at what date. And then you have later on Luke writing this. Most scholars think 60, 62, something like that. And he's referencing as a side comment, hey, this was fulfilled in the days of Claudius. So Luke is writing here. Before that, we know from history that Claudius reigned from 41 to 54 AD. So he's prophesying from the 30s, about a decade from then. And Luke says, hey, these things were fulfilled. You remember that famine in the days of Claudius. That's what's happening here. <clears throat> these things came true. Now, those are the historical details and what we need to know from the text. We should also know that the church responds in the same way 
than as the Old Testament church did too. Deuteronomy 18 is the place where you could go where the test of the true prophet is um, is is laid out, namely a complete accuracy of their prophecies, namely their stuff that they say comes true. <clears throat> this is the same chapter where Peter in Acts chapter three pulls and says Jesus is the prophet like Moses, who is arisen according to Moses, who was a true prophet. And all those who obey him will live and all those who disobey Jesus will die, will be destroyed from among the people. So they demonstrate in this text, amazingly, the abiding uh, standard of doctrine which they hold to. Namely, that, that prophets don't give half words and get some things wrong and some things right. No, 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 no. They rather tell the, the word of God and they do so in such a way where true prophets do so um, uh, that, that can't be falsified. It, it is verifiably true. And if they don't speak what's true, well, the Old Testament would have them stoned. And, and in the New Testament, we would have them excommunicated if they don't repent. So the words of the prophet are understood by the early church as on the level of Scripture. Thus saith the Lord. That is how authoritative it is. And we see that because that's what they do. They expect these things to come true and they act on them. Look in verse 29. So in light of this prophecy, the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so sending it uh, to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So here they know that this Prophecy, they're not going to wait for it to happen. They know Agabus is a true prophet and they, dec- they act on it as, is, as it is the word of the Lord himself. That's how prophets operate. Now, <clears throat> in, in this, let us be reminded of the question that I asked, which is, <clears throat> though there was a, um, well, let me say this first. Um, I've laid out, you may not hold to this, but I've laid out how uh, I believe prophets actually functioned in the New Testament. And we could talk long about this, which is this is a unique thing happening before 70 AD. And however, when we apply this to ourselves, uh, there is a category for for what we might generally call prophecy, which I believe I do every, every single Sunday, which is to preach the word of God. The, the way we experience prophecy today is that the word of God is rightly interpreted and preached and applied to you, the people. And the way we answer the question is really the same from our day to their day, whether they have foretelling of the future uh, or, or not. That is, what do a people who have their humanity restored in Jesus Christ do? They hear the word of God, they believe it, and they obey it. As simple as that. They, they hear what God has to say, and they don't question it. They might say, well, how do I do that? That's the right type of questioning. How do I understand that in light of all of Scripture? That's the right questioning. But not, should I do that or should I not? This is never a question for a Christian, or it, it never ought to be. 
The word of God says it, and therefore we believe it and do it. That's how this works. He is God. (laughs) He never lies. And we always must obey as his servant people. And over time, we pray that both my very own preaching as well as our own understanding of the scriptures would be more and more in line. Because unlike prophets of old, I make mistakes. (laughs) I have to make retractions and change stuff that I've said from the past, though I hope it's very little. Um, But the Lord still powerfully speaks through both myself and your own Bible reading and the fellowship today. And the word of God, the way that uh, we could say, Uh, modern day prophecy and a a general understanding of speaking the scripture to another person. The way that it works today is any word that somebody gives that's, that's accurately interpreting and applying the scripture. So if I made application right now to how we should interact with transgender legislation, or if I made any right and proper application of of our responsibilities of fathers and mothers in the home or what have you whatever it is or any one of you to one another it it insofar as that is accurate and faithful it bears the authority of god and in that sense it is thus saith the lord it's what god would have you or i do and we are responsible for doing that to each other and Lord willing, uh, every church would be able to to put somebody on it full time because the office of elder is very much needed in each and every congregation <clears throat> because it's hard work. It takes a lot of work to interpret the scripture rightly uh, because we're not hearing direct revelation from the Lord <clears throat> like this in our text. <clears throat> so the call is very simple. Let us be careful to give heed to the words of God as his servant. That's why we exist. That's why we've been redeemed and made Christians so that we would hear God's word and actually change our lives as it is fitting and appropriate slowly and consistently over time. This glorifies God and it also satisfies our own hearts. And we can also... From here, just make a a super brief application as we've talked about evangelism a lot lately. If we think about it this way, we could say that the problem of sin then is simply that man listens not to the Lord, doesn't desire to hear his word or obey him. That's the essence of sinfulness. And we find that in ourselves and we find that in the world. And so our responsibility is to Lovingly and faithfully give the word of God to his people in all of its parts, and especially the gospel. Now, uh, why this prophecy? Because Luke has freedom uh, by the Holy Spirit. Why this event? I I take it to be sort of normative uh, for all the apostles and, and all the writers of scripture to... Um, be choosy in what they write. I feel that all of them, probably if we go talk to them one day when we've made it to glory, that, that they would all echo John's statement at the end of his gospels. Like if I, if I wrote everything I could write, I'd fill up all the books in the world. Uh, there's a lot to write. And so he selectively chooses 
this one. Why this word from Agabus? <clears throat> Seems like it could be out of place, but I think it very naturally as we read the story of Acts and the history God uh, tells us, I think that the Spirit chooses this particular item to communicate that when the Gentile church hears this, and uh, I'll talk about their situation here in a second, what we know about them from the pages of Scripture and the Jerusalem church, that this is the thing that, that proves that they have begun and, and really are starting to understand what we learned in chapter 10 and 11. That is our unity of, in Christ. This hard distinction between Israel and the church is absolutely um, washed away. The, the, the Jews have had this, this enshrined ceremonial law that separated them from the nations. And this, the Gentile church is understanding their, their tight connectivity. That is because there's one new man in Christ Jesus, not two new men in Christ Jesus. Not Israel and the church. It is the church made up of Jews and the rest of the nations, <clears throat> such that the te- testimony of Isaiah is Assyria and, and, uh, and the Persians will all share or Egypt. Uh, the dreaded foes of, of God in the Old Testament will all share uh, in parts together when the Messiah comes. Now, let me just point this out because you might you might not know this, but as you read through your New Testament, I encourage you to see how many times there's giving and who it's to. Lots of times that giving is to the church in Jerusalem. Uh, the Jews at this time, uh, well, I'll just quote F.F. F. Bruce. He has a great statement in his commentary on Acts that is, Quote, the Jerusalem church in the apostolic age, so this first period before 70 AD, <clears throat> appears to have suffered from chronic poverty. You'll see multiple givings. This is potentially, um, if we're harmonizing all of scripture, this event seems to be best fitting with Galatians 2, 1 through 10, and not Acts chapter 15. Uh, that's for a later time. But what this ministry is, as this need arises, the Antioch church had funds. They had means. They individually prospered in various ways. And some of them who prospered felt the burning of desire to go and send money off to their brothers, their poor Jerusalem brothers, as was chronically needed in those days. Now, let me do two Two forms of application. First, dehortation, one of my new favorite words. I've, I've always heard of exhortation. That's like encouraging you to do something. This is encouraging you away from something, okay? Dehortation. I, I'm calling you to not do this, okay? It's just the opposite of exhortation. <clears throat> Don't make the mistake of thinking ministry of physical needs are... Uh, of the church and even of outsiders is unimportant or a lesser work of ministry. There are not more spiritual works and less spiritual works, as it were. They are all meeting needs in this all together, whether it be physical or it be biblical, are spiritual needs. 
Um, a distinction that would say otherwise is incorrect. <clears throat> Let me just give you a famous verse that you all have half quoted and memorized in your past, which is Romans 12:1, which instructs us, quote, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your either spiritual, spiritual or reasonable service. Uh, that, that is, this is your spiritual service, what you do with your body. It, it's not, oh, that's your fleshly service. It's nothing like that. The, the Bible knows nothing of that kind of distinction. That would be more Greek philosophy than anything else. What is holy and spiritual, we learn in verse 13, is also amazing of Romans 12. Romans 12, which one, which says your spiritual sacrifice is your body, then says in verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. <laughs> All very physical things, aren't they? That is, hospitality and meeting the basic needs of the saints is a holy and spiritual practice. Now, let me bolster this one more way. I, we could do a whole sermon on it, but I just want it to be solidified in your mind. <clears throat> you guys probably all know also Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats. The sheep are on the right, goats are on the left, and Jesus grants entrance into his eternal kingdom by something that's sort of unexpected, <clears throat> not apart from the gospel, but, but in addition to the fruit of the people. The, the fruit of the people show that they're either sheep or goats. And in Matthew 25, the righteous are rewarded and the wicked are punished for either doing this or not doing this. And that is, they are, um, are commended or condemned for their work towards the body of Christ. And the five things that it, it lists, the ministry that they give, are the needs of food Drink, hospitality, clothing, and visitation. Um, we need to understand these things, these physical needs as earthy and not earthly. Uh, I don't know another way to do that. Not worldly, earthy. They, they have to do with the things of the earth, and that is spiritual though it's sometimes often degraded in, in our evangelical circles. I, I hope you admit that and see that. So whatever we do for the fellowship in an earthy, everyday, practical manner is our service, whether it be making coffee or it be uh, providing financially or it be going and visiting somebody and providing the welcome of Christ. These are our spiritual service to God. So exhortation, what I encourage you to do then is I think it's very providential that Tomas and Erica are here with us. This text fits perfectly. I couldn't do that. I didn't plan to do that. I'm not smart enough, <laughs> nor am I planned enough. And you guys know this, but they need the same sort of support that's being asked from here. Their, their uh, country is such that um, the, the means are limited and ours is such that the means are even for the poorest of us, are, are abundant, I would say. And so I think all of us, as individuals had burdens on their heart, you should really go take a hard look at your finances. And you should go 
Do I have some money to give? Um, this is the Lord, providence of the Lord that there is a need uh, for full-time ministry in a, in a country that very much needs the gospel and good work is being done. I, I encourage you to examine what you can live without and what you can add as an additional expense for the cause of the gospel for our brother and sister here and their family. I leave that to you. Now, I do want to get through this uh, text. I'm looking at our time, which is uh, drawing near. And I want to make a quote on verse 30. And I want to touch it and then move to the theological thing that I've been driving at in this sermon. That is, in verse 30, it says, and they did so, that is, sent relief. Or um, literally, it means to send, send uh, to send ministry. I won't have time to unpack this, but that word is is uh, diakonia, the word for service or deacon. Um, this is the noun version, so it's it's the ministry that they're giving financial need, which I hopefully have made clear. They they did so, verse thirty, sending it to the elders. By the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is super important. We've seen over and over and over again mention of the when when things are related to Jerusalem, the authority there has been who? The apostles. And here there's a shift, just like there's a shift in the New Testament. When when we get to 1 Timothy and Titus, you don't have any more qualifications for apostles. You don't have any more qualifications for prophets. You wonder why? Because they passed from the scene. The, the, the qualifications become the qualifications of an elder, become the qualifications of a deacon. And here in the book of Acts, we see that modeled. The elders of the local church in Jerusalem are taking on their responsibility. The, the, the church has been established in Jerusalem. The apostles and prophets have done their work. And so the elders can take over and do their work. And so here, uh, it's very clear in context that it's not... Elders that that the Jerusalem would have experienced in the Old Testament times because of the context, namely that this is a church context. And you can even look in our next text if you want to bear this out. They're actually specifically distinguished from the leading Jews who are going to oppose the elders and the church in Jerusalem. These are Christian church elders in ethnic Jerusalem. Beautiful. That is what we find is really the last part of our answer theologically that I want to harp on. How does humanity find its full restoration? I, I understand that I can't fully prove that from this text alone. <laughs> and, and if you thought I could, well, you wouldn't be listening to sermons very well. Uh, I, th- that would be totally inappropriate. Uh, that takes more time, but... I hope in the last three years you've seen enough to understand that this theological question is appropriate. That is, humanity's full restoration in God's providence includes the, the influence, the prominent influence and leadership of the local church. That's God's plan. We might think lesser of it. In certain cases, that's why so many are willing to modify what church government is. They think, oh, elders and deacons, that's not sufficient. Um, 
And, and I say this because there are so many other models out there. You could go to even, even brothers and sisters that we, we have in other denominations, and they have other sorts of things like bishops and this and that, and they have all, all sorts of other government types. Uh, but rather the simple model in Scripture of elders and deacons and congregants, we all have a, a general ministerial office, is the way that humanity finds its full restoration. This is how our desires and thoughts and dreams get modified in the context of the local church. This is how our children learn what it means to, to know Christ, is that they're singing alongside of us and, and uh, for a time seeing the elements pass away or pass in front of them and, and hearing a, a, a reminder that they, they need to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, let me put it in an analogy. The scriptures, and especially here in Acts, what we start to see like blossoming, you'll see it throughout the rest of the New Testament, is the centrality of the local church. Uh, this is how the kingdom of God advances in the world by these roles that are set up, the government that God has put in the local church, which hopefully we have. Lots of places do not. <clears throat> we, um, I won't comment too much more than that. But, but we are to uh, work together in this place to promote the cause of Christ. And what we do in terms of an analogy is uh, we create through the local church a, a culture, a living culture of Christ that needs to be fed with the leaven of the gospel and the leaven of the word of God. And we are to feed it the, the flower, as it were, of ministry outside our bounds and, and hope that God puts the seed of the word as we hear in another place and another so that they spring up and come to life. They get added to the culture. <clears throat> but what it means for us is that this place over the next 500 years, Lord willing, would be a place that develops a robustly Christian culture that is seen not only in the church, but also individually in the homes. And there would be a great consistency between what happens on a Sunday and what happens on a, a Monday through Saturday in your home or what takes place in your ministry to the lost, both here and beyond, or your involvement in the community, or on and on and on. This should be a rich and thick culture, tangible, uh, identifiable. And uh, because it's not in so many places, I need a whole other few sermons to detail out what I would think in this regard. <clears throat> but by and large, We've heard what we need to hear, and I don't have any more time. So let us uh, turn to the Lord and ask him for his blessing in developing these sorts of things before we observe the Lord's Supper.